As certified financial planners, we've seen firsthand how financial wellness is connected to other areas of wellness in our lives. Join us as we explore the relationship between our physical, emotional, and financial well-being and share the habits and tools we found effective in the pursuit of a balanced, intentional life. I'm Lauren. I'm Donna Grace. This is Life Rebalanced. Today's guest is Cheryl Ann Skolnicki. Do you want to be a rock star at work and at home? Cheryl Ann Skolnicki has the playbook. As an entrepreneur with a husband and three kids of her own, she knows exactly how it feels to have too much to do and not enough time to do it. It's exhausting, it's stressful, and it can be tempting to just give in to the chaos. Like most children of the 80s and 90s, Cheryl Ann grew up believing she could have it all. She started her first business while still in high school and dreamed of one day becoming a CEO. After graduating from Cornell, she went to work for Procter & Gamble, where she spent the next 15 years climbing the corporate ladder and managing a portfolio of well-known consumer brand products. Despite her demanding work schedule, she still traveled, ran marathons, and volunteered like a boss. Then she had three children. All of a sudden, the unrelenting pace she was running at felt unsustainable. That's when she knew she had to reorder her life so all the pieces would truly fit including not just a thriving career and family life, but also a good night's sleep and some time to herself. It wasn't easy at first, but she finally discovered a set of practices that truly worked. That prompted her to found Brilliant Balance. And her playbook has helped thousands of professional women reclaim rock star status over the last decade. Her company, Brilliant Balance, offers work-life mentorship and coaching programs to help you have a fulfilling career and a thriving family life and a strong sense of self. Cheryl Ann is a sought-after speaker and hosts the top-rated Brilliant Balance podcast. Her work has been featured in multiple outlets, including Thrive Global, The Huffington Post, Forbes, and Women's Day. She appears on TV news shows as an expert on work-life balance, productivity, and purpose. Here's my conversation with Cheryl Ann Skolnicki. Cheryl Ann, welcome to the Life Rebalance podcast. And I have to say, I have a similarity as well. I have a double first name. My first name is Donna Grace. It's very unusual. And it often leads to a conversation about like how it came to be. Does that happen to you? All the time. All the time. Yeah. All the time. (laughs) I think the first question is, is it one word or two? It's one word. Yes. Yeah. I usually get something, especially like on my credit cards and stuff when I'm at the the store. I'm like, oh, what a beautiful name. Why did your parents do that though? It's weird. (laughs) You'll get stuff like that. (laughs) What are you going to do? Among other similarities though, I'm really excited to talk to you today because I really feel like your mission or your belief system is so much in alignment with how Lauren and I feel about working women in, I guess, the role that we play in our own lives. Mm-hmm. The name of your business and also the title of your podcast is Brilliant Balance. And the idea of balance is something that I think we're all trying to attain in one way or another. For a lot of us, it eludes us. Can you talk about like why you specifically chose that as part of the name for your business and your podcast and how you center your work and your mission around it? Sure. It's fun to think back, like how did we get to that name and what didn't just show up fully formed? The name of the business actually started with the podcast. So I had been running a business for a number of years before I started the show and we needed a name for the show. And I wasn't sure 
exactly what I wanted it to be called, but I knew it had to stand on its own because people would be scrolling and discover the show. So we did some naming work at that time to figure out a name for the podcast. And we landed at Brilliant Balance. And I can share a little bit more about how. And then I fell so in love with it. I was like, that actually needs to be the name of the whole business. So we moved the business under that name, which was a good move, I think. A little more ownable territory than where I had been before. So the concept, I was really enamored with all these metaphors around light and vibrancy. And so when you start doing naming work, you start looking at all the ways that you can describe light And brilliant isn't too far down the path when you get there. And then I really loved sort of the play on words of also being about like, wow, that's brilliant. That's another fresh way of thinking about this. I hadn't thought about that. That elevates the conversation. And so that word held a lot of juice for me. Like I really liked that word. And then balance, we knew we needed to anchor the brand in the word of balance because that is the thing. That's the jumping off point that most people can claim they're searching for. Like we know what that is. It's it's not a new concept. We ended up with the tagline of balanced life, brilliant possibilities, and the implication there that there is a progression, that when your life has a sense of balance, it opens up this kind of endless array of possibilities that let you feel fully alive. And so for a lot of the women that you're working with, it's a coaching program or it's coaching work that you do with your clients. And working women who are looking to really level up, but also be achieving balance across the playing field. Is it fair to say that in areas of their life? Totally. Yeah. There's so many different ways to say it. Most often I say, I work with women who want to be rock stars at work and at home. And we all know what that means. It's like, I want to be on my A game. I want to be firing on all cylinders in both of those arenas. And I don't really want to settle for anything less than that. So yes, those women would come in the door to us saying, either I'm really struggling with elements of how we traditionally define balance, Mm -hmm. either taking care of myself, getting all the things done that need to be done, get time management, productivity, like that's the struggle. Or maybe I'm okay there, but I'm starting to get the sense that there's more to this journey called life. And I really want to start to explore some of those possibilities. And one of those two places would be where we're crossing paths with women. Can you talk about the second one? Because I think the former is what we're all familiar with. Yes. You're at work thinking about home. You're at home thinking about work and trying to manage all that really well while still finding, I don't know, some time for yourself and giving love to your relationships. That's, I think, a struggle that we're all really familiar Mm -hmm. with and all working on. But what is the latter of what life has to offer? What does that mean to your clients? Yeah. So I think about this as a progression, right? So the reason we're all familiar with those first kind of buckets is because if we don't have them sorted out, we're never even going to think about the third one. So let's define them as the lowest level of the pyramid or the ladder is really our management of our energy. Do I have enough energy to get through my day feeling fully alive? Okay. And that's where self-care practices come in, physical health and well-being. It's where mental energy has to be managed and emotional resilience lives. So if we don't have that stuff pretty solid, then that is all consuming. Because if you're really tired, you just can't even think about anything else. So that's baseline. Once that starts to feel stable, we sort of earn the right to think about our time. So now I have enough energy to do stuff. It's what am I going to do? And that's where we start thinking about time management and productivity. And we start wanting to bite off more and things seem appealing. 
Because go back to step one, when you're really tired, you're retracting. You want your life to be smaller. You want to do less because you, you know you don't have enough fuel to really do more. Your capacity. That's right. So then you start solving like, oh, well, now I'm interested in lots of things and now I've bitten off more than I can chew. So that second level is about how do I really better make choices? How do I decide what I need to do and what maybe someone else can do? How can I learn some efficiencies and some systems and processes? So there's this whole sort of middle tier that's about, do I really have a sense of control over my time and where it goes? Time being our only finite resource. And then when you have that sorted and you're like, my life is in pretty good rhythm. I feel like I have enough time. I'm getting enough sleep. I'm taking care of myself and my family. Now it's, do I like what I'm doing? Does it matter? Does it have meaning? Am I steering towards something that I really care about, that I feel is like worthy of my time and my attention and honestly of my life? And that's that third territory of possibilities and purpose and like why. It's the why. And so it sits at the top of the ladder or the top of the pyramid. If you think about Maslow's hierarchy, it probably maps to self-actualization. That's what I was picturing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I meet a lot of women there because it's like the midlife pivot. It's not really a crisis mm-hmm. per se. It can be. Sometimes it shows up that way if we're not paying attention to the early signs. But it's more of this call to like course correct a little bit, to make some shifts so that we're comfortable with where we're directionally steering all of our energy and all of our time. It sounds like that's the point when women get to the place of I'm making good money. My family is healthy. I'm doing all of the things that I thought I wanted to do, but I'm just not feeling the satisfaction from it or the purpose of it. And do most women come in knowing like knowing what's missing, knowing why they're unhappy. So a lot of this is like psychology work, I bet. (laughs) Yes. I mean, what they come in knowing is how they feel. Okay. So I have all the things I thought I was going to have. I have the job. I have the education. I have the relationship, the kids, the house, the car, the vacation, whatever. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel the way I thought it was going to feel. That's the statement that really is the clue that we're in that territory around fulfillment. All those things you just named are material things, almost all of them are. They're things outside of yourself. And it's a luxury in a sense, or a a blessing to be in that position where like all of those basic things have been, the boxes have been checked. You're not wanting for anything. That's right. That's amazing and wonderful, especially in a time right now where people are looking around them and seeing things around them that maybe don't, all the boxes aren't necessarily checked. But to be in that position where, yeah, you're, you've achieved what you thought was the level of success or, or productivity or status that you were looking for. Mm-hmm. But now, like, shouldn't I be doing more? Shouldn't I give more? Shouldn't I be learning more or, or feeling more? It's like all of those things, right? Things that have nothing to do with money. <laughs> Right. And for sure, it's a privilege to explore those questions because when we're trying to tend to our own survival, we don't get to think about those things. So it it is for sure, it's a privilege. And what that brings with it is guilt. Mm. So people will say, I should just be grateful for what I have. I was thinking that the whole time. It's like, you're feeling like you're ungrateful if you're unhappy when you're at the stage. And it's both. It's to be grounded in gratitude for having the privilege to now explore what is my highest and best contribution. Mm -hmm. So I think what we learn is like, yeah, I, I can learn how to make a good living. I learned how to do that using some of my skills. But am I 
of the highest and best use. And it doesn't have to be a job-related change. Sometimes the shifts that need to be made at midlife are, what am I working so hard for? So I will regularly have women, Donna, who are like, I am just working so much. I'm getting my kids off the bus and then I'm like, here, watch this movie because I have two more calls. Or I'm, this year, not even sending my kids to school, right? I was just going to say, it must especially be like that in this environment we've had recently. (laughs) Or I'm using my nights and my weekends to just do more work. And there's this question of like, am I doing that right? Is that what that's supposed to be like? And so it's not always about, am I doing the right work? Sometimes it's about, is my overall life steering toward a vision I really have? What's the philanthropy that I want to do? What's the vision I have for my family? Am I tending to my health? in a way that I really do feel a sense of vibrancy? Am I tending to my relationships in a way that they're thriving? So the dials that we adjust may or may not be career related. Often they are just recognizing the blessings that are right under our nose, so to speak. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because something that I feel really strongly about is the idea that all parts of your life need to be tended to. Like every single one can't be the priority Otherwise, there would literally be no priority. If everything is at 100 in terms of urgency, then nothing special. Exactly. But everything needs to be tended to, to at least be at like a healthy functioning level. And when you are down in one area, it really starts to spill over into the others. Like this year, I've been really been focusing on my personal health because I've had some issues come up. And I said, you know what? It's time to step back in a couple other areas. And this has to be your focus. And I will say that with the first quarter down, I'm doing pretty well. That's awesome. And I can see it enhancing other areas, just like I saw it detracting from them. Yeah, there's a lot of different models on this. The one you're describing is like the tension on a string idea, that if we're pulling on one because it's really become a problem, Mm -hmm. then it's creating drag against the others. If you picture like a spider web model, that's all a string, you can pull on one edge of it. It's going to pull the other ones with it. Another model I like is where, how much mental energy do we really have available to give? And so when you're trying to make changes, you have to be judicious about how many you're making at once. In your case, you're like, I'm going to focus on making changes and improvements to my health. Well, that's creating a cognitive load that is not infinite. You can't just keep adding to it and say, at the same time, I'm going to take on these 10 other areas of my life. So prioritization and choices really do matter there. Yeah. And it's such a common saying, but it's like the rising tide lifts all boats. I really do buy into that. And I've seen improvements in my work life push me towards wanting to be better in other areas. So I'm the sort of person where I feel like when I've gotten myself to a point that I'm happy with the health of whatever area it was I was focusing on, I can say, all right, now that I know that I'm there, what needs the most attention somewhere else? If you're dealing with someone who's feeling that they're unhappy specifically in the career part of their life. And this is something that I run into a lot with people that I talk to a lot of my friends, just feeling stuck, whether it's like the environment isn't serving them that they work in or the work itself that they do isn't fulfilling to them anymore, but they feel stuck there because of money. And I see this happen all the time. It's so hard to say, all right, but I can't just walk away. (laughs) We have obligations, we have responsibilities. How does that affect other areas of their life? And what do you see as the result when they are finally able to make a shift? Mm, This is my favorite. I think anytime that we are in kind of indentured servitude, 
in some area of our life, and you picked probably the most common one, like I can't make a change in my work because I have to make this money. The way to think about that is I'm in indentured servitude to the life I've built. So I, this is going to sound a little harsh to some of your listeners who may not know me, right? So take a breath, stay with me for a second. Maybe me too. (laughs) Right? Maybe you too. But that's the moment when I would invite whoever's uttering that phrase, let's say you, Mm -hmm. to double click on the choices that were choices that could maybe be remade in a different way that are driving that decision. What city do I live in? What house do I have or apartment am I renting? What car am I driving? What choices am I making around our lifestyle and where we eat out and what we do? Like all the things. And typically there are a few of those choices that are really driving that statement of, I cannot leave this exact job because I need this exact amount of money. Okay. I was just going to agree with you. So in my my day job, when I'm not doing this podcast, I'm a financial planner and I work with a lot of pre-retirees and retirees. And it's a very similar discussion that we have when people say, can I retire? I'm like, well, if it's really important to you to retire because there are qualitative life issues, you can always find a way to make it work. It's just a matter of like opportunity cost. What are you willing to give up in order to have this improvement in your lifestyle? Right. And it's exactly those things. Like how many memberships? What city do you live in? How much do you spend going out to eat? All these things. You can choose something different. So that's the thing is we want to be honest with ourselves Mm -hmm. because what we're really saying is I can't leave this job and I'm going to say it a couple different ways, unless I find another one that makes as much or more money. And often we are operating under the assumption that's not possible. Mm -hmm. We all think we have the only job on the planet (laughs) that pays as much as as it does. You're right. Yeah. It's really crazy to me how often I'm I'm like, do you think you have the only job on the planet that pays that salary? And they're like, well, I guess when you say it like that, no, but that's like the paradigm we're living under. So that's one avenue. And then it's, I also like can't leave this job unless I make the same amount of money. Okay. So let's assume that's viable. Well, why do you have to make the same amount of money? Well, because I don't want to change a single thing about my current circumstances. I'm living at the breaking point. And that's either true or it's not. Sometimes it's all up here in our heads. It's not actually even true. There's plenty of room. And sometimes it is true. And then that's an invitation to re-examine. Am I willing to take the kinds of jobs that afford me this lifestyle? Or are there maybe some changes I could make that would give me a little bit more freedom? And I think there are probably some big levers that are pullable. And then there's some small, I'm not in the, you know, don't give up your latte. I'm not like in that kind of a camp here Neither am I, because it doesn't make a big enough difference, but there are some big differences that can be made that make real changes in the overall cost of living. How about if money isn't the issue? Mm -hmm. I see people like who feel stuck all the time, Mm -hmm. whether it's stuck in health, stuck in their job, stuck in their, Mm -hmm. I don't know, their life in general. And it's almost this like inability to make a decision or inability to decide to change. I feel like sometimes it's a self-sabotage situation where there are clearly choices in front of you that you're not making. What do you make of that? Oh, there's not one answer. Okay. So typically I'm in a diagnostic approach. If somebody is like, I'm just really stuck. I just, I know this isn't it, but I'm really stuck. A couple of pathways that come up that Mm -hmm. a listener today might think about are, am I stuck because I don't know what I want? I haven't really put in 
the time and the thought to decide what I would want more. And we will never steer into a fog. No one will drive their car off fast into a fog. Like you will only move if you feel like you're moving away from pain or towards something that's more pleasurable. So having a clear vision, if you will, like some picture of what I think I want, that can get us unstuck because now we're moving toward it. If you're not in truly enough pain where you are. Yeah. I was going to ask, what do you find to be more motivating, moving away from pain or towards something better? Because I know in my industry, there's clear science around it. It's pain avoidance is far more motivating than classically potential gain. Yeah. It's why people don't buy vitamins, they buy medicine, right? It's the yeah, same I guess so. Same kind of psychology is we're more wired for like get ourselves out of pain mm-hmm. than avoid future pain or move toward pleasure. I love to see both actually. Because if you're not in any pain, why would you change? Like your life's pretty good. It means you're satisfied. So typically it's a little bit of both. It's honoring what is itchy. Why am I describing it as stuck? Why do I not want to be here? Being really clear about that. Recognizing that you do in fact have choices. So sometimes people are stuck because they have classified the situation as I have no choice. Just like you said before, I have to stay here because I have to make this much money and this is the only job on the planet that does it. I have to stay here because we just bought this house two years ago and blah, 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 blah. We won't get our money out of it and whatever. There's always a story about why we can't yet. So that's the second thing. So either I don't have a vision or I haven't classified this as a choice. I've classified it as I have no choice. And a third reason would be I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. I have so much fear. Yeah, I have to think that's a huge... I don't know if you'd call that a motivator or a roadblock. I guess that'd be a roadblock would be the fear, clearly. And it's a fear of all kinds of fear of failure, fear of judgment, fear of loss. Start listing the fears. There's so many that can get in the way there. So any kind of change requires courage. And that's a lot of what a coaching process is designed to do is to help you source that courage and leverage it to move yourself in the direction you really want your life to go. Can we talk about something you just mentioned? It's fear of judgment. I have to imagine that it is something underneath the surface for so many people, whether they realize it or not, whether it's so many of us are just built on the idea that we're going to keep the people around us happy. And it's it's not even because you want to be a people pleaser. Like I know some people self-identify that way. They get it. Even people who don't identify that way. I think that we just feel it's so important to keep the balance around us. I don't even mean balance for ourselves, the like equilibrium in our life for everybody else. As a mother and someone who works in a small business very closely with the people I'm with, I see myself making decisions all the time that are not necessarily about what I specifically want, but are like, I think this is for the greater good of everyone else. We're just going to do this. And they're not necessarily damaging. And part of what I want is for those around me to be happy. So in a way, it does serve me. Sure. Give me some insight on this. Like (laughs) riff on that. Sure. I think what I'm hearing you say and your experience, and I'm sure Mm. a lot of listeners experience is we do care what people think of us. But if we want to be happy, we have to build a tolerance for judgment. Yeah. And I like what you said, we do care what people think about us. There's how often do you hear people say like, oh, well, I don't care what anyone thinks. This is, I'm not going to care what anyone thinks as if it's like a badge of honor. Mm -hmm. Well, if you really don't care what anyone thinks, you're like a little bit of a jerk. Like people matter, (laughs) right? I mean, well, I think we should care how we make people feel. Yes. Yes. And I think that's, but I I don't think we should necessarily care 
what their opinion is of our choices, right? right? And there is a distinction there, but they get blurry. I'm glad you just defined that. Thank you. Right. So I certainly think we should care how we make people feel. Okay. But what I choose to eat for lunch has no bearing on your life or how you feel or anyone else's life for that matter. So for me to worry, like, let's say I'm out with people, I'm like, I shouldn't order that because they'll think I'm a whatever. (laughs) We all know people listening that has run through your head or I can't wear that or I can't carry that bag or I can't drive that car. I can't buy a house in that neighborhood because of what people, has no bearing on their life. So For us to be happy and to live the lives we are truly meant to live, we have to develop a tolerance for judgment. And our tolerances are all at different set points. Some people will say to me, my husband will not let me do that. Okay. Like, oh, I don't know what, I want to buy this bedding and my husband will not let me do that. And I will say, tell me what you mean by that. How do you know he won't let you do that? Well, I brought it up and you should see the look on his face. Well, what did he say? He didn't say anything. Interesting. So there is someone whose tolerance for judgment is pretty low. Mm. It's like the raised eyebrow is enough to shut it down and be like, I won't even, I'm not even going to pursue this. And see, I would look at that and feel that the raised eyebrow meant, tell me more. (laughs) What more are we, you know, let's learn some more about this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Depends on the expression, I'm sure. Right. So that, or like, oh, my children would never tolerate it if I, my children would be so upset if I didn't go to the Halloween party. Well, how do you know? Yeah. Well, I just know they would be so upset. Really? You don't actually know. Is there a conversation there about, hey, this is what I told my kids. All the moms can take this one away. I told my kids at the beginning of their school careers that the moms were not allowed to go to all of the parties. So which one was the most important one to them? You've got to pick. They will not let them on. (laughs) This is actually true in our school. So I wasn't even really like making this up. It was like competitive volunteering. So I would say, I can't get into all the parties. Which one is the most important one? And that's the one I will be at. And then like, boom, freedom for the, they're not mad about it because they understand that the rules of this game are like, you go to one. Tolerance for judgment, whether it is, can you withstand an uncomfortable conversation where you're saying, I'd really like to go away for this weekend with my girlfriends. And they're like, oh, I don't want you to do that. I have to take care of the kids for the whole weekend. And it's hard when you're gone. And like, oh, I haven't gotten to go away and blah, blah, blah. Okay, can you navigate that conversation and still ultimately get to go away? Or is that too much for you? And you're like, I can't possibly have that conversation. So I'm not even going to ask. So this is just showing where any of us may be on the spectrum of tolerance for judgment. Mm -hmm. I also, at least in what you just described, I think that we're not giving other people enough credit, right? Like we're making assumptions without giving people the opportunity to validate our assumptions or pleasantly right. surprise us. Yeah. Yeah. To tell us the yeah. truth. Cause we're just filling in the story with our worst fear. Typically when we have a fear of judgment, we will fill in the blanks of the story with our worst case scenario. And then we just won't even ask because asking is like too painful. I'll tell you, I used to be a worst case scenario person and about, I don't know, it's within the last 10 years or so specifically around like email. So in email and text message, mm-hmm. you know, it completely lacks nuance. There's, you can't hear someone's voice. You can't 
there's no tone, expression, no nuance. Right. So I decided, and this is literally a decision that I made one day, I am just going to assume the best possible version of whatever I'm reading. I'm going to assume that it's being said with a smile and like a high pitch at the end somewhere. And, and that it is always meant with the absolute, like happiest tone, best intention. Yeah. Unless someone specifically tells me otherwise. So that's awesome. I found that to be very freeing. So there's seven of us in my company and that principle for us is called assume positive intent. Assume that the Slack message, the text, the email had positive intent. Don't read some tone into this unwittingly. And thus, and then if you're really worried, like verify, mm-hmm. because boy, is it easy to your point to miss the nuance of that communication. It really is. One of the first things you mentioned, I wrote it down at the beginning of this, so I wouldn't forget. Sure. I wanted to touch on the I don't know if you want to call it a concept of self-care, but the idea of self-care we hear used so often and it's used to mean so many things, many things that I don't even think fall actually into the category of self-care. They call into just fall into the category of just like being a human person. (laughs) Like seriously, you need to eat good food. You need to sleep. You need to shower. Like this is not self-care. This is literally maintenance. This is physical maintenance. So how does that factor into when you're working with someone who really isn't taking care of themselves. Like there's a lower level of it. And then there's a level that actually brings like joy to you. Can you talk about that and like the impact it has and and how you work with people to to coach them better on it? I probably have a little bit of the same knee-jerk reaction to that word that some people do. The word I really hate is pamper. Like (laughs) I just hate that word. But self-care, it has been diluted and used so much now. Mindset is another one that's getting that same. I'm like, we're going to have a broader language around some of these terms. So if we go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? There's like honoring our humanness. And so you have to sleep and you have to eat well and you have to move and catch your breath throughout the day. And there's just some basic maintenance, like you said, of being a human, running the machine. And then it's how well do you want the machine to run? So the metaphors I think about are things like elite athletes and what might elite athletes justify in their recovery, in their own care of their human machine and mechanism, because it is how they make their living. So I understand why, but things like ice baths and personal trainers and daily massages. And so we could go on and on, right? On all of the things that they might do. What might someone who uses their body to say, like be an actress or a model do that they're willing to invest in, in terms of how regularly they're getting their hair colored or their nails done or facial treatments or whatever, because again, they're like, well, this is my career. So I'm going to part of the moneymaker. I'm going to really take care. Okay. Well, guess what? It is for all of us. Like this body that we're walking around in and this mind that we're using is in fact, the vehicle to live our lives, right? To be in relationship with people, to play with our kids, to make our living. Like it is for us too. So I think finding our level of, first of all, what's broken and needs to be tended to and repaired so that it's at baseline level of functionality. And then what could be optimized or fine-tuned or refined so that we are vibrating at that higher frequency, playing the game at that next level. It's hard. It's hard, especially when it requires time or money to get us there, to feel... Usually it does. Usually it requires both, right? To make us feel like we're worthy of that. 
And that's the, Ooh, that's the worthy of it. I'm that's a in. strong word. Yes. Yeah. That's when that hits people. I and bet. That's why they're not doing <laughs> yeah. it. I mean, when you break it all down, what they'll tell you is like, they're not worth it. They're not worth it. Like they weren't, they won't use that language because that's that's a lot. No, but that's what their actions. That's what their actions. The undertone of it. I don't need to sleep because I'm of service to everyone else. So my sleep is that's not worth anything. It's worth it to stay up late making those cupcakes for the class tomorrow, or it's worth it to stay up late responding to those emails for my client. But my sleep, that's not worth it. It's not worth it for me. When I tell people that I, I get seven and a half hours of sleep every night and I have three children, I'm getting a dog on Saturday. So that might cut into my sleep a little bit for a while, but I do. And it's only been for a few years and I definitely gave stuff up to get that. Yes. <laughs> Me too. I used to say I'll sleep when I'm dead. That was like my little motto in my twenties. And I am pretty, well, in fairness, yeah. it was your twenties. Come on. <laughs> True. True. I could get by <laughs> things in your twenties. <laughs> I'm pretty territorial about sleep yeah. though. And the reason is I've learned I am like superhuman when I am well rested. And the only reason I would call it superhuman is because most humans today are sleep deprived. Mm-hmm. You know, so that notion of like, if you are a fully rested human, you are just leaps and bounds ahead of most of the population with your energy level. People are like, how do you get so much done? How do you have so much energy? I'm like, I am really territorial about sleep. And I will say I have fewer waking hours just like you do because of it, but each one of them like counts more. Yeah. You're focused better. So one of the things that I think a lot of people ran into during the pandemic, working from home with kids there, is you realize you don't have an eight hour workday necessarily anymore. Your workday is in chunks all over the place. But if you can get yourself like a two hour super focused time to like bang things out, you can accomplish as much in that time as you could in almost double it in your air quote normal life because you're focused and you're getting it done. And in a kind of less dramatic way, I would say that you carved your life into that by saying, yeah, I am going to get my sleep and I'll just do better with the time that I have. Yeah. And Donna, when you start to layer these things together, like we're talking about energy management right Mm -hmm. now, right? Self-care is the determination of your energy management. So if we are energized and the quote machine is is functioning optimally, Mm -hmm. then we go back to how are we thinking about our time? And what you and I just naturally morphed into is, oh, we're making better use of the hours we have. There's just a predisposition to productivity. You can think more clearly. You make better decisions. Things go faster you layer in some systems on top of that. And that's how you climb that ladder back to, okay, why am I really here? What's the biggest impact I can make? So in your case, that's how you do the podcast on top of a full-time job while raising three kids. It's like you're climbing that progression, which is beautiful. Do you find that having those things in your life also coincides with being better at leveraging the resources around you, mainly being people that you're willing to ask for help? For me, that was something that It all comes together at once in that, yes, I can sleep. I can do as much in a short amount of time, but it's about scale and capacity and making sure that if I'm going to be doing this much with a shorter amount of time, that I'm asking for help and accepting help around me. Yes. You find the forcing functions. So by choosing to take on more and have fewer hours to do it, that's a forcing function to say, therefore, I got to figure out how to get help. So there's really only 
three ways to get time back there. I can't think of a fourth. It's like you either don't do it at all. If you take something just off the Mm -hmm. plate altogether, you have someone else do it, which is what you're talking about with asking for help, whether it's paid or unpaid support, the task is still getting done, just not by you. Mm -hmm. Or you figure out how to do the task more efficiently. You find a better way to do the thing and, or you accept imperfection or whatever. That's it. Those are the only three ways to really get time back. You accept imperfection. That's something else done. Not perfect. Yeah. That's definitely a, one of those lessons that you only learn once you finally get to the point where you realize you can't do everything perfectly (laughs) when you try to, nothing gets done. (laughs) Yes. I want to quickly throw something in. So a huge thorn in my side is email. Yes. And it's not just me, it's myself and some of my very good, they're very good friends of mine, but they're also, you know, business associates. And we talk about this all the time. We cannot manage our email. It's out of freaking control. And I know as I was scrolling through your podcast episodes that you have one about email management. Yes. And I think that people should go listen to this episode. Could you quickly summarize maybe like if it's three top suggestions you have for it of what you can do? I know someone who's literally at the point where they're willing to pay for an online course about how to properly manage their email. It's a serious thing. (laughs) Oh gosh. Yes, it is. Isn't it? And it's like getting worse by the day. I'm especially if you work with one or more organizations that don't use collaboration tools like Slack or some of the... like Our company's use of Slack has dramatically reduced my email because all of my internal communication got moved out of that system, right? So... Oh, that's smart. There's some... Again, you go back to what's your big lever that's going to really pull stuff out. Absolutely. Let's talk about some practical tips on managing your inbox. The first one I'm going to tell you is... People are going to go, why didn't I think of this? And it just really is so effective. The thing that drives us crazy about email is our inbox. Mm -hmm. And if you had let your closet get totally out of hand and you're like, I just can't even go in there because the closet is so totally out of hand. The difference is you can close your closet door. Meanwhile, your inbox is shaming you on all of your devices. Staring at you all the time. Right. So what I advocate is a one-time process of cleaning up the inbox And I usually recommend going back one month and archiving or deleting everything that's a month or older. Okay. Because what's happened with our inbox is we have made it like our filing cabinet. So all of this, people have 800,000 messages or they'll have 8,000 or they'll have 800 and whatever their number is, it's driving them crazy. Okay. We just can't think about that many things lurking in there, stressing us out. And the truth is, I promise you this, anything older than a month you are not looking at or thinking about, you do not care about, it has already passed, okay? So what our fear is, oh my gosh, if I delete it and I need it, it's not gonna be there because really reviewing it is like this giant filing cabinet that is sitting in front of us. Mm -hmm. So the simple starting point is take all of those emails that are older than a month and either make a folder in your email provider called old emails, if you're not brave enough, or delete them or put them in an archive, but like out of sight, out of mind. Don't even open them. Don't look at them. Don't do anything with anything older than a month. Just get them out of your inbox. Then there's a couple of other processes that I walk through in the podcast of like how to quickly clean up 
stuff that is in there. And the biggest thing is prevention here is your best cure. Unsubscribe. We're going to get off some lists. Yeah. So when you're down to a month, then you can resort it by sender Mm -hmm. and you'll see all those repetitive senders. Oh, there's two old Navy emails. And here's the 400 from wherever. So to the top one on that list, exercise that unsubscribe button because you really probably don't want all those coupons every day. And then just delete the rest of the batch. So you can quickly chunk your way through the true junk mail. This is the equivalent of ditching your junk mail, standing over the recycling bin. And then you're down to the stuff that's coming in that you actually want to get that might need to be dealt with. And I have some processes I go through in that episode on how to, in real time, as you're dealing with current stuff coming in, make better choices about delete or read and file or... I tend to batch them to act on if it's anything, you know, more than a really like quick response. And the thing is, even if you're really good at this, you're still going to have to do the cleanup. So I still once a month go back through and redo that cleanup. I try every week to make sure I've dealt with stuff. And then once a month, do that same kind of, because it'll still grow. But it doesn't take you eight hours once a month as it would for me that first time. No, and it it won't take you eight hours the first time. Honestly, if you go through Mm -hmm. and follow the actual process I outlined in the episode, it will not take you eight hours. You'll be amazed. That is something that I am going to do. When I saw that, I did start listening to it. And I was like, oh, this is what I need to do. Like just something, and it is something that is a thorn in so many people's side. Like I said, something that's sitting there judging them. Yes. All right. Lauren and I have three questions that we like to ask all of our guests. And I can't wait to hear what your answers to them are. Okay. With the understanding that, like we said earlier, everything in your life, all areas can't be a priority at once. Is there a particular area of your life that is a main focus for your energy right now? Yeah. My family is a really big focus right now. This year has been super hard for everybody. And my kids, especially, I have a 10, 13 and 16 year old. They are number one. And they've got a lot going on right now, probably. My gosh, I also have a high schooler. So when I'm thinking about like, I don't know if yours are in school right now or hybrid or... Mine are in school. Yeah, so mine are too. And it's like every other week, we're just like, were we a close contact? Were we not a close contact? Can you go here? Can you not go there? It's a lot for these kids. It's so much. That makes a lot of sense. And so given that they're getting a lot of your much needed energy and focus right now, is there another area of your life where you're just giving yourself a little bit of grace saying, we're good here. (laughs) It doesn't need as much attention. Girlfriends. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So the time has to come from somewhere, you know, and if I'm going to invest more time and energy in conversations with my kids, Mm -hmm. then there's going to be less of it available for other people. So yeah, I would say my girlfriends are not at the top of the list right now. And again, they're obviously wonderful about that. And like, to your point, they will be there. I'm guessing that a lot of them are going through the same thing too. So (laughs) we're all in this crazy boat. So (laughs) do you have any like particular habits or things that you have with them? that are helpful to you in focusing energy, like a special dinner date or anything like that? Or One mechanism, and this is not new to this season, we've mm-hmm. done this forever, but a family dinner. It's absolutely helpful. Yeah, and we do a family dinner almost every night. There's That's remarkable. It's a priority. And I think sometimes just change the time around to make it work where we can mm. get... And every now and then we're missing one and it'll be a different one. But we... That, but it's happening yeah. for everyone who can yeah. be there. And that's a really important unifying mechanism. The other thing I've been doing a lot of is walks, like one-on-one walks, because we can have 
an extended conversation while we're out getting some fresh air and some movement. And so that's something I also really love doing. So those are a couple of practices that help and just being willing to put something down to invest the time. What I'm learning kids need, and it's hard for me, is what Matthew Kelly calls carefree timelessness. They need to not feel hurried through whatever experience they're having. Mm. And we're always hurrying them. We've always got to get somewhere. Or That's the one thing we got in the pandemic was not having to hurry to be everywhere. And if you think back to your childhood or your teenage years or your college years even, and when I think back to mine, the reason they're so intense and, and joyful and powerful is because we had that time to lose ourselves in a conversation with a friend or a boyfriend or a a team or we really could. Because you couldn't text them. Yeah, you were really in that moment and it did not feel rushed. It felt expansive. And so I think that's how relationships flourish is when it's not like, well, I have 18 minutes. I'll call you while I'm in the car on the way. Like we can't build anything there. We can do our best. But it's the people who we give that depth of time to that we have the strongest relationships with, I think. I think you're right. Yeah. And just like letting them feel that you're not thinking about the next thing that you're doing or the next person you're going to talk to, that the the focus is all on them. That is so important and so special. So Cheryl Ann, if our listeners want to learn more, where's the best place to find you on social media? How can they follow you? So Instagram is at cschoolnikki. Well, we'll spell that in the show notes. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. If you get as far as C-S-K-O-L, you'll probably find it. And Facebook, Cheryl Ann Skolnicki. And then the company has accounts on both of those as well. So brilliant underscore balance or just search for brilliant balance in Facebook. So those are the two biggest platforms for us on social. And then don't forget, you can listen and subscribe to Cheryl Ann's podcast, also Brilliant Balance. Cheryl Ann, thank you so much for being with us today, sharing your expertise and and stories with our listeners and with me. It's been very enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Be well. 